Interact with RoboHub, the podcast for news and views on robotics. Hello and welcome to the RoboHub podcast. In today's episode, our interview Audro interviews Caitlin Claybar, a senior PhD candidate at the University of Southern California. This interview is a little different from our usual episodes because Audro actually works in the same lab as Caitlin at USC. They speak about using robots to support people, for example in the home, particularly focusing on lessons learned from actually deploying robots for research with people, including children. Caitlin's work throughout her early career has taken her from working on a sign language project using machine learning to putting robots in people's houses, including designing systems, getting data to analyse and running pilot trials. She talks to Audro about her work to date, the expectations in human subjects' research with robots, and she also gives some general advice for PhD students. Hi, welcome to RoboHub. Hi. Would you introduce yourself? Yes, um, I'm Caitlin Claybaugh. I'm a PhD student or candidate in computer science at USC, um, and I work in the Interaction Lab. Mm-hmm. What motivates your research? I'm motivated by, really, by special needs education um, and by special needs in general and being able to create technologies that are able to cater to those needs and cater to the needs of each individual user. Mm -hmm. And what has your research trajectory been? Like, what has kind of been the sequence of projects that you've had during your PhD? That's a good question. I I would say that it actually started in undergrad. Um, I was very lucky to have... um, a liberal arts education that let me do specific projects. And the first project that I worked on was for assistive technologies, and it was specifically for translating American Sign Language into text. And that was when I got my first taste of machine learning, um, and that was in 2011, 2012, and realized, wow, this is such an amazing tool, and if it could be used for people who have either learning differences or have some unique need that maybe the general public doesn't really pay attention to Mm -hmm. as much as it should, Um, it could be really cool. And so I kind of continued doing more projects and then applied to graduate school and really my interests really well aligned with Maya's and the Interaction Lab. Um, The only thing that was a bit different is that I never really pictured a robot necessarily in the role. For me, it was just any piece of technology. And Maya's focus is so much on the socially assistive robotics piece, and that's really what I've gained here in this lab. Mm-hmm. Okay, so why the robot? That's a very good question. I get that very often. Um, to be perfectly honest, I don't think I understood my first year in the PhD. I remember a time where... Um, I presented in lab meeting, and my focus was very much on just the machine learning side of it. How can we have any agent, virtual or whatever, adapt to a particular user's needs? In that case, it doesn't necessarily need to be a robot. And Maya kind of called me out, and she was like, why are you in this lab? Like, if, if it's not with a robot, if it's just with anything, why are you in this lab? Mm-hmm. 
And I would say I didn't really understand the robot piece until I did my first human subjects study with a robot. And I did it in a preschool classroom. Mm -hmm. And the way that each kid interacted with the robot was so distinctly different than I've seen kids interact with a tablet. Mm. I think that there's a lot of research, ongoing research, about why this might be. And I'm not going to necessarily you know, say why it might be, because I don't know. I don't think we know yet. Um, but I do remember it being very different. Mm-hmm. Like, after the interaction was complete, this was the last one that I did, um, I was collecting the robot, had to put it in its, like, little crate. Didn't look special, didn't look like a rocket ship, didn't mm-hmm. look, you know, interesting at all. Um, and the child, like, continued to suspend their disbelief, right? They kept playing pretend. They thought this robot was... Not actually, they didn't actually think this, but, you know, the storyline was that it needed to go back into its spaceship. Mm -hmm. And so the robot was turned off, and she insisted that it was sleeping, and insisted that she place it in the crate. How old are these kids? Um, She was six years old. Mm. So... It's so cute. Yeah, it was really cute. Um, And, you know, I don't really think that this is just with kids either. I think that we like things that are, or at least I've kind of come to appreciate us liking things that are there co-present with us. Mm -hmm. Um, So I started to realize there was something different when it was an embodied system, Um, even though it was a lot harder to make these things happen in in an embodied system. And it wasn't the exact thing that I was studying. Like, none of my studies are, oh, tablet versus robot. I don't do that. Now I'm just sort of like, I just kind of take it for granted, for better or for worse, you know. <laughs> People can ask me, why robot? But just like, you know what, my intuition says, and this is maybe not very scientific of me, but my intuition and my experience say, like, this is more interesting. I get more interesting interaction when it's with an embodied agent, and I'm interested in interaction and seeing interaction. So if I feel like it's more vibrant when there's a physical um, entity there, then I'm just going to go with that. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Okay, so you started doing <coughs> something for translating speech, or mm-hmm. and then you this was a lot of machine learning, mm-hmm. and then you got into the interaction lab, and you were still in machine learning, mm-hmm. and then you somewhere have studies with kids. Mm-hmm. What? How? I mean, just filling out the your trajectory a little bit more. Like, why did I focus on kids? Or, but how, like, where did you go from? sign language to kids or um how, how did how does that how is that transition yeah i mean i think that the big transition was and just then, coming to maya's lab gotcha and then what was the study what what studies have you done with kids um i you focused on kids the whole duration of your phd yeah i've kind of focused on kids the whole duration i mean mm-hmm. i've been part of the giant nsf expedition grant mm-hmm. which is focusing on children mm-hmm. um specifically and i for me there are so many underserved needs and populations that, like, yeah, okay, I started out with, like, American Sign Language and hard of hearing and deaf, but, like, you know, other people need attention, too. And it's just it's just the fact that this is a, a specific need that may not receive the mm. same amount of attention uh. um, that the general population gives to other things in technology, like... 
these technologies aren't necessarily made for special needs first. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, it was like any any cause. Um, I think learning differences are particularly important to me. Mm. Um, and when I say that, I mean it could be it could be autism spectrum disorder, which is kind of what I focused on later, or it could be dyslexia or dysgraphia. It could be like an, an attention deficit. Like mm-hmm. it could be all sorts of different things and flavors. And really, I think when it comes down to it just having a different perspective or mindset mm-hmm. when you go to create these technologies, that's that's the key. It's not really what is the specific need. Of course you're going to tailor the technology to that specific need, and there's a lot of non-trivial things to be had in that process. Mm-hmm. But the first step, I think, and like where my mind was going into the PhD, was I'm not going to just make tool, cool technology. You know, I'm not going to just make, like, a cool app um, or a cool interaction. It's not just going to be a social robot that can, like, I don't know, have a a little banter with the average Mm. person. It's going to be there for a particular need. Mm. Um, And it's going to care about each individual specifically. And Maya and her lab... Like she is so focused on that, mm-hmm. and she and she really like it's it's not easy. Um, it's much more popular to go with things that you can have. I don't want to say higher impact, but if you think about machine learning, data is key, right? The more data you have, maybe the better models you can create. That's why, you know, in like when I came out of my undergrad in 2013, all of a sudden machine learning was starting to pick up was because mm-hmm. of ImageNet. And like you have all this data now and you can do these great methods to detect certain things. And it's really hard to get a lot of data for one particular person or for a particular subset of the population that is underrepresented or underserved. Mm-hmm. And so it's a much harder task um, from that perspective, but I find it a lot more rewarding. Hmm. Um, and, you know, someone has to do it. Um, gotcha. Yeah. Okay. And then, so, with these studies for these children with learning differences, what kind of questions have you asked? Um, like, we don't, not necessarily what are the results, but, like, what, yeah. just to give a flavor of the research that you've been doing. How long does it take to understand a particular child or person's learning differences or learning styles? Um, I think that's a big one. And how to adapt to those while you're also trying to understand them. Hmm. So that is, I think the hardest and the key problem, right? It's interesting. It's like slam, but for teaching. Yeah. As you're exploring, right? Um, As you're exploring this person's mind, you're also trying to optimize balance to be had there, not just in like, oh, it's expensive to explore in terms of what problems I give a person, but 
Also, it's expensive to personalize too much, to overfit. Of course. And when I say that, I don't necessarily mean from a modeling perspective. Okay. I mean from a learning perspective. So um, one of the theories in, like, one of the older theories of learning style, for instance, Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of debate about that, right? Like, is it best to be catering to certain, do learning styles even exist? All these things, right? And the learning style is simply, like, if it, the simplest version that I think a lot of people first think of is like, are you more verbal? Are you more, more visual? Mm-hmm. Are you more kinesthetic as a yeah. learner? Well, okay, let's say, let's like put all the debates aside and say, okay, learning styles are validated, like they exist. Um, if someone is a highly kinesthetic learner, mm-hmm. do you cater to that? And I mean that in like, do you want to give them, if they learn better kinesthetically with a particular task, should you be doing it all in that fashion or should you be pushing them to learn in other ways? Hmm. So that if there's someone else who maybe, or something else that's less kinesthetic of a task to learn or someone who doesn't understand how to teach in a kinesthetic way, like maybe you also need to grow the way that they learn so there's the idea of like growth mindset i don't know and i really i love that um want to just talk about it just for a second yeah so growth mindset is the idea that like nothing is fixed basically um you can learn and grow in all different sorts of ways and so Mm -hmm. if i there's no like ground truth of like i'm this type of person yeah if i'm a highly kinesthetic learner sure that might be true right now but it doesn't mean that i can't become a more verbal or visual learner Mm -hmm. if i focus it might be harder it might be less natural or intuitive for me to do those things but it doesn't mean that i can't do it So everything um, is like skills or something. And you exactly. Can learn. Everything is a skill. Even the way in which you learn is a skill. Mm-hmm. So, so do you want to take this perspective and try to nurture specific skills for learning in them that might benefit them because they are very specific at the moment? So you don't want to yeah. cater exactly to them. Yeah, well, it's just like with everything. You want to push yep. people outside their comfort zone. And, and there's, there's a little bit to be... So when you think about... Um, my later work has been with children with autism spectrum disorder. And so this has been really interesting for me because there's a lot of debates about this, right? Like, do you, and it's just generally in disability rights. It's like, do you have society move towards the person or do you have the person move towards society? Like, how, how do we come up with this balance? Um, one of the things that we've been looking at are, it's been really interesting is like what is a behavior that the child does that is like cognitive or coping Hmm. cognitive being something that might be desired right like uh an instance of this that i find really interesting is uh echolalia echolalia is the idea that you repeat what the person says oh so this could be kind of this has been noted as something that children with, or people with autism spectrum disorder might do as a behavior, right, is uh, echolalic behavior. Mm-hmm. And it's not necessarily socially appropriate in certain contexts. Mm-hmm. Um, and so how do you know if, like, what they're doing when... But sometimes you repeat instructions at the average person, right, like, yeah. um, who may not 
typically have this behavior will repeat instructions as a way of like cognitively processing them. Mm -hmm. And so just with that small instance, like there's this really delicate balance between shaping someone's behavior, which may be benefiting them in a certain way Mm -hmm. and shaping it towards something that's like benefiting society. Right. Um, Because maybe someone finds it annoying if you repeat everything that was said to them, but like maybe this is something that's allowing the the person to process the information, or is it just a way of like coping with the conversation? It's just a way of, yeah, you know, it's like a little tick, basically. right? Yeah. Um, and we all have those, and so which ones are socially appropriate or socially inappropriate? Mm-hmm. That's really something that kind of is decided by society, right? Yeah, different <laughs> um, norms of the time. Yeah. All right, so I'd like to talk a bit about some of your research experience, so from the perspective of lessons learned. Mm -hmm. Uh, First, you have a lot of experience in human subjects research, Mm -hmm. and so first I'd like you to tell me what is human subject research and why is it important? Um, Yeah, okay. So human subjects research is any sort of research with a human subject. Um, It's with a human participant. Mm -hmm. So these... This sort of research, if you publish something about, um, it could be a variety of things. It could be in our in our lab. It could be an interaction between a robot and a human. Um, in other cases, it could be putting a device in a human and seeing what happens. So it could be from like something very medical to something more like we do, which is more external, mm-hmm. um, more or social. More social, yeah. Um, it could be showing pictures to a human and seeing how they react. Mm-hmm. So the reason that this is a particular category of research is because we have to protect the data and, and what we're doing, right? Because it's with it's real, real people. Yeah, they um, don't want their information given to yeah, everyone, especially it's, if they're trusting you. Exactly. It's just like doing sensitive thing. an interview. Is it on record? Is it off record? Right. Yeah. Um, so there are just certain ways of, of guarding people's privacy. Um, and with human subjects research... The reason that it's so interesting in what we're doing is because it's not necessarily something that's done in computer science inherently, right? Like, in computer science, you could have a huge data set that's publicly available. Um, It's not private in any way. Um, It's not directly affecting... It might affect people. Um, In fact, I know Facebook got in trouble for that, (laughs) Um, right? Like, they did a giant human subjects experiment, but in their terms and conditions, we approve that. Mm-hmm. Um, so in a research setting at a university, we have the um, IRB, the Inter-Review Inter- Board? Or, no. Institutional, Institutional Review Board. Institutional Review Board. Yeah. I've been saying IRB for so long. Um, and that is... That's basically a board that, you know, you present okay. how you're going to do the research. and Yeah, so, so it sees that it's ethical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, ethical is... Yeah, not going to be exploiting any populations or anything. Exactly. Or asking too much of them or putting them in a difficult situation. Mm-hmm. But then, so, okay, we're doing studies on humans. Mm-hmm. Why is it important? Why is this important okay. as a research thing? Um... It's important because we, what well, the types of, we're doing human-robot interaction, mm-hmm. socially-assistive robotic interaction. And so we can't just rely on typical 
methods of evaluation that we have in computer science. Like, it's not just a matter of, I mean, some some studies are, like, how well did my model predict X, Y, and Z? But at the end of the day, like, we want a closed loop, right? Mm -hmm. So we want the robot to take actions, and then we want to see how that action affects the end user. Mm -hmm. The only way to do that is to do a human subject study. Ah, yes. Um, And so... Because every single person is unique, and every single time that you interact with the person is unique. And so the only way to do it is to see how the robot's actions affect the human at any particular point in time mm-hmm. um, in a particular environment. Um, I can expand on the environment piece if you want. But, sure. um, so it's when I say like time and environment, there are also different grades of human subjects research. So... Some of it could be in a lab setting. So it's highly controlled, and this is important for rigor, right? In science, we need to be able to repeat our experiments. So it would make sense, like, you want it to be in a lab setting so that someone could configure the same setup and execute your same experiment with a human Mm -hmm. subject or other human subjects and validate it. Yep, check that your results Mm -hmm. are reproducible. Exactly. Now, what's unfortunate about that is that people act differently in different environments. Mm -hmm. And so a person interacting with a robot in the lab is very different than a person interacting with a robot in their home. And how do you repeat that? Mm -hmm. How do you repeat this particular home environment? Like, you just can't. But it's extremely important to do because at least what I've seen over the course of my experience with human subjects research is that Interactions between humans and robots in natural environments like the home, personal, private environments, they just lead to way more interesting, rich behaviors. Mm-hmm. And I'm using those words and I feel kind of like <laughs> like a real estate agent where you're like, oh, it's charming, you know, because yeah. when I say unique and rich, really what I mean is noisy. <laughs> and, oh, yeah? Uh-huh. yeah, like hard to deal with, you know, it's unexpected. Um, but those are where like the in- the most interesting problems from my perspective are. Um, because no one's going to be coming into a sterile lab environment and interacting with a robot if this is supposed to change their everyday life. I mean, that's kind of impractical, right? Mm-hmm. Ultimately, we want these agents to be in our homes and to be integrated into society. And the only way to do that is to study it in real environments. Gotcha. Now, would you tell me a bit about the process of doing an in-home deployment? Just at a high level, what does it look like? Yeah, um, it depends on how you do it. (laughs) Um, We were faced with this challenge of we want to deploy a fully autonomous system that we don't need to necessarily check up on for a whole month. Mm Mm-hmm. So as close to a commercial product, really, as yeah. you can get in research. Like, it's, it's really a black box. It's like sending a robot to space. You, you have no idea what's going to happen. Um, and it's like, you know, don't structure it in any way. We took, like, a very extreme version of this where we weren't like, okay, you're going to interact with it on these particular days at these particular times. No, we were just like, here's the on switch. Yeah. Switch it on whenever you feel like it. We'd love if you interacted with it, you know, pr- pretty regularly. Regularly being defined by, like, you know, f- most of the week, five times per week or something like that. Mm-hmm. But it's not enforced at all. Um, 
and just see what happens. To make that happen, you had to create a system that was robust enough Mm -hmm. to stay in the home for that long and was easy enough to use. And I will also say that we're doing this with children and children with autism spectrum disorder, which means that we had to be very mindful of components to the system. Like if we had things sticking out that they might want to pull on or, you know, you have to think about all these things. And so it was really like, how do we just glue everything down and make it small enough to just like bring into the home and leave there where it hopefully won't break? Mm -hmm. Because every time it breaks, you have to make a trip. We have to make a trip out. Um, And even with the software. So. Uh, The other thing is that it's not connected to the internet in any way for privacy. This is part of the human subjects research piece, right? Um, For the privacy of the in-home data, it's not connected to the network, so we can't do any remote updates of software. Mm -hmm. So a software change is as hard as a hardware change in the sense that we have to go out there Uh um, and, like, you know... Attach it to our like iPhone, you know, hotspot, and then <laughs> yeah. get do a get pool. You know, it's like not, it's not very practical. But um, it was important to have that piece mm-hmm. for this particular research. Of course, if it were a really commercially available product, you could do things like remote updates. Um, so yeah, we had to kind of test everything and make sure. It's just to think about a lot of stuff. You know, mm-hmm. and in a way, you kind of have to put yourself. I always am like, what would I do if I was like the? I was like a pretty bad kid, <laughs> bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I put that in quotes because, like, I don't know, I probably shouldn't say that, but like, I was kind of destructive and like really hyperactive, um, and so I would be like, okay. If, what would I do? Like, what would I want to do? Like, so and so, like, we have a webcam, right, that's recording all the data. And, sure, we could just place the webcam like you would on any other computer. You know, it has a little thing that's made to, like, just prop it up. But, like, I know. They're going to just knock it off. Like, if you think about it as, like, I don't know if you have cats or have seen cats. But, like, yeah, bat it away. Yeah, exactly. Like, what is this Anything you can touch or you just have to think about, mm, what's the yeah. worst case? Okay. So getting into this, what are some lessons? Like, what, what is, reflecting on this, what are some, some things that you've learned during your time doing these in-home studies that, um, if you knew, would save you time in the future? I think I wish I had more time before we deployed. We were on a particular timeline Mm-hmm. And um, I wish I had a little more time to pilot the system. Mm. Um, because our first few deployments ended up being more like pilots. Um, because we were still figuring things what, out. So what do you mean pilot? Yeah, I guess it means like an alpha version of the system. Mm. Like, it's not... So like, testing it out, basically, seeing how people like it. And yeah, it's like, it's, it you've done it, the, fir- the first in-home deployment, right? Like, you've yeah. tested it in the lab, you've had the kids come into the lab, but, like, like I said, there's a huge difference. There's, like, a valley between having the same kids that are going to interact with it in the home come into the lab and interact yeah, with totally it. totally different. Um, and 
I didn't really know the extent of that because I had done preschool classroom. I had done, like, deployments in a preschool classroom. And even that, like, kids are more, they're in school. And so this environment lends itself, you know, learning and interaction is, Mm -hmm. like I said, environment is key. Um, So they're, like, being respectful in the way that they would be respectful in a learning setting like school. In the home, it's completely different. So I think I, like, I mean... If we had planned more like, okay, let's do, instead of a full month with the first participants, do like a week even. (laughs) Um, And in fact, that's kind of what ended up happening with the first participant. We had it there for a week. We had to come back Mm -hmm. and like take the system back and like make some changes. And Mm so that's what I mean by it was a pilot. It just wasn't intended to be so much of a pilot. I see. So I think having your so you expectations would have things differently. Yeah. If you had known at the beginning it was a pilot. I mean, I kind of knew that it was a pilot, but yeah. um, it would have been nice if we had done a pilot a little bit earlier. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Yeah, um, that's one thing. Another thing is. Um, In, and this is part of the pilot process. Really getting detailed feedback from the parents oh. or the subjects. And so it's not just like, oh, put a system out there and see what fails and what doesn't fail, but also like getting input from teachers and parents. Yeah. I think we did this a lot, um, but just what, focusing what kind on your of users. Feedback, like, what things um, to ask? I mean, it really depends on what you're doing. In your specific case. Um, what, yeah. Do the matter. games seem, like, do the activities seem to be too hard or too easy for your child? Mm-hmm. Um, do you wish that the games would be changed in any way or the interactions would be changed in any way? The physical system, like, do you think it looks cool? Do you think it is cumbersome in your home? Um a big takeaway from the first couple pilots, and unfortunately, we already had the ball rolling, so we haven't been able to create more content and more activities. Oh, yeah. Was just start, exactly. Yeah. That's why I'm saying, like, if you plan ahead, you can plan a pilot. Like, I would say six months before your actual deployment. Okay. Um, and this is speaking particularly to my case. I think okay. other systems that are less complex, you need less less of a gap, but that six-month gap would would have allowed us to create, um, like, multi-party interactions. So something that came out of our particular study is that, yeah, it's a dyadic interaction in that it's supposed to be between the robot and the child. Two people. Mm Two people. Um, But... We found that, like, the parent will always be involved. Other, Uh, like, the siblings will be involved. And it works fine in that it... would be nicer if it... But it would be nicer if it were, like, actually planned to be a collaborative task. Yeah. Um, And, in fact, every parent has been like, yeah, it would have been really cool if I could have (laughs) played... Like, the parents want to play with it. So, yeah, if we had had a substantial gap between the pilot and that, like, we would have been able to... Take that feedback and incorporate it. Really, yeah, really incorporate it. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Any other... What other lessons have you learned? Um, So, outside of pilots, so we know we mm -hmm. have to test. And getting feedback is a very good thing. Really planning out your 
um, what you intend to gain from your study. Well, what does this look like? <sighs> it could be so many different things, but I think for this, it would have been like, again, if you do a pilot, mm-hmm. you can understand better if you're going to be starting to get the results that you want or not. Uh, I see. And when I say that, I mean, of course, it's supposed to be unbiased. You don't want, you know, but... No, but if you're a test, you want to look at if what you're testing is actually going to maybe have the any sort of impact. The results that you're hoping you see. Yeah, when I say results that you're hoping to see, I don't necessarily mean like that confirmation bias, of course. Yeah, I don't mean like you want to make sure you're testing something interesting. That there's a difference. That there's a difference. Any yes. difference. Some salient thing. Yeah, um, and not just noise. Basically. Exactly. Um, so. We've seen a case in our lab that's that's been like this, which is just, and I think there was one time in the in this expedition that it happened to. Mm-hmm. Basically, if you have an example is if you have a set of games mm-hmm. that are of some particular difficulty level, like one to five. Okay. But difficulty level number one is way too hard for the kid. You're never going to get to difficulty level number five, and if the whole goal is to be selecting the right difficulty level, you've like you can't yeah, you can't right. go anywhere, okay. and so and that kind of thing requires careful design a priori. Yes. Um, so and working with them to figure out exactly what working with them, figuring out like what the right target age is, yep. um, how to evaluate that a priori. So like we do a pre-assessment. For inclusion and exclusion criteria. For what level Mm -hmm. we should start at. Yeah. And again, all these things should ideally be ironed out before you do full deployments. Um, Yeah, imagine a month deployment. Yeah. Level one was too difficult. Exactly. So, like, a study like this, I feel like you need at least two or three years of prep before you can get. I mean, and we did have, we had about. Yeah. I mean, these games were developed in my first or second year yeah. in the PhD and we, and we evaluated in a preschool classroom like it takes a long time when you only have a handful of people working on a project yes. like this um, of course in industry I feel like there might be a different timeline um, but in this sort of research it, it took a while um, and we could have even been a little more prepared going into the homes gotcha can you tell me a bit about the expectations of home deployment versus the reality of home deployment? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I feel like when we deployed, I had done enough human subjects research to, like, not really have very many expectations. <laughs> what do you mean? But that isn't in, yeah. in itself an expectation. Yeah, I think... You knew it was going to be terrible? There were what? there were things that I expected. Like, I expected that they'd be able to turn an, on and off the system, <laughs> that the system wouldn't fully break. Was that wrong? No. But that's such a low bar. I know. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, my expectation was, like, they could turn it on and off, and, like, it wouldn't completely crash. Yeah. And, of course, like, that's, like, when you're creating an application or anything, like, that's that's the lowest bar, right? Yeah. Um, Didn't get it working. And then everything else was kind of just, like, a, a bonus. <laughs> um, but... 
So the expectations are very low. I don't want to say I feel like my expectations were pretty low. <laughs> um, I mean, you're taking nothing for granted. Yeah. Is what you're saying, basically. Yeah. I mean, I do think that we were expecting we were expecting there to be some interaction. Yeah. Um, I did. I have seen the games in in a preschool classroom before, so I did expect them to be somewhat engaged with the games, mm-hmm. at least a, for a few times, mm-hmm. um, not for a full month. I I will say like, I was hoping that they would be engaged for a full month, but I didn't. I kind of expected like a week in, we'd be like, shoot, we need more content. Um, and the reality was. They were actually engaged the whole month with those activities, which blew my oh. mind. Yeah. Um, what were the activities? Just uh, yeah, they were just ten math games. Oh yeah. Yeah, and they're pretty simple. Like they're not really hiding that they're math <laughs> so much. Um, and so for that, I feel like the fact that it was a robot and like it has this backstory. There's definitely something there that's adding to the games because it's not like a. They're pretty lame otherwise. And you don't yeah, lame compared to you know like kids have pretty high oh, standards iPads now. Have I- iPads have crazy exactly, and ones that are like mindlessly entertaining. Yeah, yeah. You know, like Candy Crush or like <sighs> this one kid that we deployed. This one with like he loved this like zombie killing game, and I'm like. Okay, well, we don't got, we don't have like blood. <laughs> we don't have any of these like cool things. Yeah, um, it's pretty much like drag five moon rocks into a box. But yeah, they were like engaged doing it, so that was kind of exciting okay. to see. Um, the other thing that uh, initially we were expecting, like, uh, oh, here's one thing. So, in the preschool classroom. Mm-hmm. Eye gaze behavior, engagement behavior can pretty be like pretty well estimated by like head pose. So where the child's looking, if they're looking at the tablet or looking at the robot. Um, but because we weren't in a controlled setting like that anymore, the child could be looking away but still engaged in the game. Uh-huh. And I'm still like, how do we solve this issue if we ever have an agent in the home trained to like engagement is one of those things that everyone's been researching because it's such an important feature it's kind of fuzzy and like we can kind of predict it somewhat well um but a lot of people end up using head pose and what i found is that like with head pose if a child is asking their parent in the back of the room about something like now all of a sudden are they unengaged in the game no they're like talking about the game so i would classify that as being engaged still Mm. so that that was something that really broke expectations um the fact that oh the other thing is again i had kind of a low bar for (laughs) like was the child going to pay attention to the robot at all i mean there's a tablet right so they could just be yeah, playing so the tablet game. Up, there's a tablet that the child interacts with, and then there's mm-hmm. a robot behind it or something. Yeah, there's a robot behind. The robots. Yeah, the robots up at the top, and then the tablets down below, and the child plays the games on the tablet and like listens to the robot's instructions. I, especially because we're dealing with children with autism, um, I was expecting like eye contact with the robot to be pretty minimal, if not non-existent, and. They consistently, over the entire month, every child that we've seen, like, looks up at the robot. They've introduced the robot to their toys. Uh-huh. They've, like, shown the robot off to their con- community integration partners, to their, like, uncles and friends. And it's like, 
wow, they're actually treating this as an agent. Yeah. And it's it's all pre-scripted. Like there's no there's mm-hmm. no like real complex magic that's going on behind the scenes other than, you know, difficulty selection and, and graded queuing feedback, which is just yeah, so that's really just like a teaching. Learning. Yeah, that's really just the teaching aspect. It's not the yeah. social aspect. No. They've really, the, we've seen the kids really apply huh. social things to this this robot. Um, and that's, that's been so really funny. interesting to see as well. Okay. Let's see. Do you think that this changes with age? Do you think if you go and you work with older kids or kids without autism, do you that's think that a good question. you'll see something similar? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think I'm always surprised. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's like that's why I have such low expectations because I'm like I feel like you you never really know. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, I'm even surprised by myself. Like I've had, I've been working on these robots, and like sometimes you you know you just like talk to things sometimes, you know. Um, you like you your dog, yeah, or like, like, you know what I mean? It's like there, and you're like, why are you so stupid? And so it's like, <laughs> it's a very natural thing, I think, as humans in general, to be socializing, um, even with things that are maybe less social or social in a different way than you are. Um, so in that way, I would I would expect that even something that has a simple social behavior um, some and we've seen it in HRI research. Like someone could could contribute some social qualities that will allow them to engage in that way. Um, even if it's simple, like the pair the paro robot is. I feel like and that's a small seal. For yeah. Mm-hmm. And it has FDA approval now yeah. for you know reducing it. Basically, like people. It's a companion robot. Yeah, people feel companionship with this thing that's just. Fuzzy has some motors in it and has really yeah. simple it's like a Furby reactions. For exactly, yeah. The Furby is a great instance. Yeah, people went crazy over those. Um, That's true. Like What's Tamagotchis. I don't know it. Tamagotchi. I don't know it. Oh. What is it? Um, so it was a very popular toy at one point. I actually never had one, um, oh. but it's it was like a care the play pattern was you would take care of this virtual oh, agent. Oh, is it like a little tiny It's like a little egg. Display? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I do. I have seen this. And okay. so, yeah, anyway, there's this notion that, like, we do get attached to things that are not necessarily human, <laughs> yeah. but still have some amount of agency. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I do think it would be different if we were doing this with older adults than kids. Drastically different. Um, but I would expect some amount of social interaction. Gotcha. Okay, uh, going back a little bit. So imagine a new researcher that is just starting out in HRI, human-robot interaction, and they're going to be doing in-home deployments. Mm-hmm. What do you tell them, and then where do you think that they're going to have the biggest difficulties, maybe in their expectations? I would say... If they're focused on the computer science side of the problem, if they're focused more on the interaction side, Mm -hmm. do not take for granted all the other pieces to the problem. When I say that, I mean everything counts, even if you're not directly studying it. For instance, our games... They have attractive artwork 
they have a background a background story about mm-hmm. space. Um, our robot was designed to be in, engaging for kids. It was designed to be not totally human-like, but still have some sort of quality of an animal, like have some sort of meta- metaphor yeah. to something that could socialize. And all these things are may not be the thing that you are directly studying. Just like if you choose to do it in a lab setting or a real-world setting, they may not be what you're directly studying, but they will have huge impact on the outcomes. Um, if you know, so really being very mindful of every part of your design process, um, because ultimately you want to keep everything else. You don't want anything else to be a distraction from the thing that's no. key to your work. Yes. So you're trying to test something and you don't want other things to negatively impact your yeah. conclusions. Yeah, and when I say that as well, there's a balance to be had, right, yeah. in that you don't want to constrain it so much. What do you mean constrain? What, what I mean is maybe the cleanest thing for a model would be to do a virtual study. Like a mechanical Turk kind mm-hmm. of thing? Maybe that would be the simplest thing in that yes. it's fully observable or like you can you can choose what the robot can observe or not observe in this virtual space. You can deploy it with lots of different people. But there's a balance. There's like one end of the spectrum like that. But then how does that really affect the real world, real interactions? Yeah. There's a so huge gap there. And so... Big distribution. Yeah. And so it's really a kind of a balancing act with how much... And I feel like I was really fortunate. I, I didn't plan it in this way at all. Like I'm not that... <laughs> There's so many things that have happened where I'm like, I'm just really lucky because I'm not smart enough to have planned, you know, five years out. Mm-hmm. But I, the out. games that are being deployed in the homes right now, they were initially designed in a preschool classroom. Yep. And that was a little more of a constrained interaction, in a sense, than in the home. Yes. And so I was, like, gradually making steps to a very, like, in-the-wild experiment. So... I think depending on where your goals are, um, like, are you more, are you, find the thing that you are really driven by. Mm-hmm. For me, it was like, how do I make technologies more accessible and catering to people who have unique and special needs? Mm-hmm. So, from that perspective, like, I knew that I had to get into the realist environment, right, um, with people who really needed. Uh, assistance so really decide where your goal is like if your goal was more how do I create a general model of engagement with a robot like it might be a completely different study yes so and it's a long road um it's a long road it's a marathon and so really feeling at least somewhat driven by that core like that core value is extremely important um, because it's not going to be easy. And even if you like are the most passionate person about what you're working on, there will be days, weeks, maybe even months where you're just like, 
Do I want to do this? I mean, there is like kind of a third year slump I've heard, but, and I definitely felt that. But like, like, why am I doing this? Like, I don't understand what a PhD is. Um, so, really finding the thing that's important to you, I think, is is key. And then structuring everything else around that, and kind of like going with the flow, and like coming back to that. Like, what is the thing that motivates you? What do you mean structuring things around that? I mean, um, like for me, a mechanical Turk study would have never worked for my things that I valued. Mm. Now, of course, like a mechanical Turk or a big end study with a convenience population would have been really attractive from a machine learning perspective. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, what I care about is like... I see, I see. You so know what I mean? it picks your research decisions. Yeah. Or it helps inform them. It helps inform them because... I don't think that your expectations of results, like what you expect the interaction will be like or not be like, that's a really risky way of going about doing things, right? If you like want to see a particular result, oh yes, definitely, um, you might be really it's disappointed. Bias. Yeah, exactly. So, I think attaching yourself to a cause, um, and that's true with anything, um, but with a PhD, it's a long road. Um, attaching yourself to a cause and then just like committing to it. Um, there's a lot to be said for just committing to something. Um, and even when, when you hate it, (laughs) you know, like, uh, if you have to like write a sticky note somewhere, that's like, this is my goal. And if you don't even feel it that day, but just being like, you know, like I committed to it, like that, uh, there's a lot to be said for that because, It'll get you through times that will definitely happen where you're like, why am I even, you know, like you'll be doing things like I'm like hot gluing something and you're like, what does this have to do with my PhD? I mean, um, so I don't know if that that made sense. But for me, it's like the more connected you can be to the thing that that intrinsically motivates you, not extrinsically motivates you, the better. <laughs> um, All right. Yeah. With that, thank you. Yeah. Okay. And that's all from us for today. As always, you can find all our past episodes and lots more exciting robot-related content at robohub.org. And if you have any ideas for future interviewees that you'd like to hear from, comments about any of our content or questions about the podcast, our podcast director, Audrey, is always happy to hear from you. Just send him an email at audrey.nash at robohub.org. That's audrey.nash at robohub.org. We'll be back in two weeks' time. Until then, goodbye. Interact with Robohub, the podcast for news and views on robotics.